welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. The next two episodes of this podcast will be focusing on the aspects of research related to work done in a museum or science center. Today, I'm joined by Perry Roth Johnson, an aerospace engineer and science educator. He's currently an assistant curator at the California Science Center in Los Angeles, California, developing exhibits and overseeing the restoration of artifacts for the Samuel Ocean Air and Space Center, preparing a welcoming home for the Space Shuttle Endeavor. Perry Roth Johnson, welcome to Tidbits of Research. Thanks for having me. You are currently working at the California Science Center, which provides, I looked it up, an innovative model for science learning by combining exhibits with an on-site science center school in Amgen Center for Science Learning, as well as a teacher development program. What do you think are the benefits of this particular kind of learning? Well, thanks for the question. Thanks for having me again. Um, the California Science Center is kind of unique in that a lot of museums and science centers live in this world that we call informal science learning, uh, where if you walk up to a, a, an exhibit and you're not particularly interested in it, you have the free choice you know, to leave after 10 seconds if it's boring, go find something more interesting. And that's a little different from what we also call the formal science uh, education world, where you're in a classroom or a lecture hall. But the California Science Center also runs its own elementary school. And so we sort of like bridge that gap between the two worlds. It's a charter school within the LA Unified School District. So it has a little bit of an autonomy in terms of... Uh, what programs it wants to run, but it's still funded by the school district uh, to some extent, as far as I understand. And we also have some staff crossover between the two sides of the institution where curators, uh, some of my colleagues will actually go and run programs with uh, the students there. Like I know our curator of life sciences does a squirrel walk with the second graders, our curator of uh, aerospace sciences, the head curator, my boss. He'll take students out to uh, Leo Carrillo, which is on the coast of California, and they'll build their own telescopes and look up at the night sky and try to identify things on their own. That's so cool. Yeah. So so there's like a lot of crossover where you have more of these informal learning environments blending in with uh, formal learning environments, because even like the regular daily teachers uh, who are in charge of these classes on a day-to-day basis will bring their students over to the science center for field trips because it's literally a walk across the Rose Garden. So do you get a chance to help with the curriculum development for this elementary school? So I personally haven't been too involved in it. That's that's mainly been uh, the other curators on staff. But I do remember my first uh, month there, I got to sit in on one of the fourth grade classes where they, they went over uh, and started prepping them for this trip. Uh, this astronomy trip to Leo Carrillo. And uh, occasionally we'll have things like, I know the kindergartners, they have this competition every year uh, for who can do the best on something. And if they win the competition, they'll get like pizza with a curator. So I've gone over and hung out with the kindergartners for lunch and had pizza with them and and told them, uh, you know, what we're up to over at the museum. Mm -hmm. That's really cute. Yeah. So you do develop some exhibits for the Samuel Ocean I'm sure I did not say that right. Air and Space Center? How should I say that? That's okay. It's the Samuel Ocean Air and Space Center. Uh, And yeah, that is the project that I got hired to work on and develop exhibits. My background's in aerodynamics, and there's a big air gallery with airplanes in there. And so that's kind of my, my baby right now. 
So I do, I would love to hear about all the like past projects I was reading about some of them. And kind of the, the first one I'd like to start with is hashtag ET comes home. Mm. You were basically driving this huge orange tank through the streets yes. of LA. Yeah. Wh- how did that go? What were people's responses and what was it for? Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me back up for a second because it relates to the Samuel Ocean Air and Space Center. So we want to build a full stack of the space shuttle. So we already have the orbiter, Space Shuttle Endeavor, that came in 2012. Also got pulled through the streets of Los Angeles. Uh, it took three days and three nights. It was it was quite challenging. Uh, a little bit before my time. I joined a couple years later in 2014 uh, to join the effort to build an expansion wing of the museum for the full space shuttle stack. But we, we only had the orbiter, so we still had to acquire the other parts of the of the shuttle stack, which are the two white solid rocket boosters and what you were talking about, the big orange external tank. So kind of following in the footsteps of dragging the orbiter through the street, I think it was in 2015 or 2016, we dragged the orange external tank. Uh, you know, we came with a cute uh, nickname uh, for the move, ET Comes Home. It was donated by NASA this tank was sitting in Louisiana, just outside of New Orleans at NASA Michoud, for about 15 odd years outside. And so they had no intention to use it. I mean, the space shuttle program had already been retired, so NASA graciously donated it to us. We stuck it on a barge, shipped it through the Panama Canal, it landed at Marina del Rey, and then from Marina del Rey, that's when we put it on a truck and dragged it through the streets. And it was much easier than the shuttle because there's no wings that kind of get clipped by trees and power lines. There was still some that we had to clear out, but it it only took 18 hours instead of three days. (laughs) And so because I hadn't been on staff for the orbiter rolling through the streets, I said, uh, is there any way, you know, I can volunteer and like be a part of this parade? Because the parade for the orbiter was quite spectacular. I think something on the order of like a million people came out to watch it roll through the streets. It really brought the whole city of Los Angeles together. It, it became this kind of national event even. The orange external tank, not quite as spectacular, but still pulled a, a decent crowd. I think we had something like a quarter of a million people come out. And I was driving one of the uh, RVs behind, basically as a porta potty for the astronauts who are working the crowds <laughs> along the street. So whenever they needed a bathroom break, you know, I would stop, they would hop aboard, we would let them take a break, uh, kind of catch their breath from talking to all those people. And then they get back out there and keep working the crowds for the rest of that that 18 hour trip. Now, these are basically gas tanks, right? For the space shuttle orbiter, the thing that carries propellants. Exactly. So it helps the thing get into orbit, and then it detaches and it falls back down. So it should not be intact. But this one is intact. Right, yeah. (laughs) There's some history there. Yes, so I can tell you, so all your listeners are on the same page with us, you know, what the external tank does. And then there's a little bit of a sad history actually associated with this particular tank. So so first of all, the, the orbiter, it has three main engines on the back of it. And those engines pull all of its propellant from the orange external tank. That orange tank is actually... You can't see it from the outside, but there's two tanks inside of it, one that has liquid hydrogen, one that has liquid oxygen. And so you siphon those out of the tank, you pull it through the underbelly of the orbiter, they mix, they get ignited, you blast off. Uh, And once the orange tank is empty, those engines don't do anything anymore. So when the whole shuttle stack launches uh, from the launch pad, it uses up all of the gas in that orange tank in about eight and a half minutes, and then it's empty, so they detach the external tank and it falls back to earth 
But by that point, eight and a half minutes up, you're so high up in the atmosphere that there's no way for the orange tank to um, be recovered. It just burns up in the atmosphere because you're so high up. Now, this is a little different uh, for, for those of your listeners who might know than the white solid rocket boosters, which only go up about a quarter of, of, the, of the time. It's like two and a half minutes after launch. And then they detach and they have parachutes and they fall back into the ocean and they were recovered and refurbished for a future launch. Kind of like what SpaceX does with their first stage of the rocket now. It wasn't as fancy. You know, we don't land with, with uh, firing the rocket to land it nicely on a, on a barge floating off. It just kind of fell unceremoniously with, with parachutes. But same idea. You want to reuse it uh, if you can. But the orange tank was just too high up. So it was really designed to be as light as possible to just be strong enough to withstand all the, the stresses of pressure from, you know, going through the atmosphere as well as uh, holding those really cold uh, liquids because these are like several hundred degrees below uh, zero Fahrenheit to keep the, the hydrogen oxygen liquid. And then it was designed to, to break up safely in the atmosphere. So if you have a flight rated external tank, you should not have one on, on Earth uh, if it has launched to space. Our external tank, it's number 94, is flight rated. So why do we have this thing? <laughs> it kind of begs the question. So in 2003, we lost Space Shuttle Columbia and all seven astronauts aboard because they had a problem with their external tank, which was ET-93, the sister tank to our tank, same exact construction because unfortunately on launch you have these very cold liquids inside and sometimes ice will form on the orange foam on the outside that that orange you all see it's it's foam to keep the very cold liquids inside cold just like a cooler that you would bring to a beach to keep your drinks cold and sometimes condensation and ice can form and bits of these pieces of foam will break off and in Colombia's case it actually hit the leading edge of one of its wings and punched a hole through the ceramic edge of the wing. So for the rest of the launch, for the rest of uh, their time in space on orbit, they were fine. But on re-entry, the job of those ceramic tiles, the orbiter, are to protect the astronauts and their, their craft from heat on re-entry. And since you had a big hole in the ceramic heat shield, it let all of that hot air uh, and plasma uh, in and it melted the internal structure, which was made of aluminum and can't withstand. Uh, sometimes you're looking at upwards of 2000 degrees Fahrenheit, sometimes 3000. So all that to say, after this you know, national tragedy, NASA scientists had to figure out what happened with the external tank attached to Columbia because they had some video showing that a piece of uh, the foam fell off and hit Columbia's wing. So they took the closest thing they had, ET-94, which was still on the ground, ready for a future flight, but hadn't launched yet. Started picking it apart, removing foam from it, doing experiments on it. They practiced shooting bits of foam at tiles to see what kind of damage it would do. Finished their investigation to determine the cause of the accident, uh, like we just talked about. And then it just sat for 15 years. Because this is getting like super inside baseball, but there's actually a more lightweight version of the tank that came after the Columbia accident. So they they improved the design of the tank and they had this older version of the tank from the Columbia accident investigation with a bunch of foam missing. So it's like, why would you reuse that obsolete tank? Why would you try to repair it, add all the foam back? So it just sat there 
for 15 odd years until uh, we requested NASA donate it to us because we had this dream to assemble Space Shuttle Endeavor with the, the tank and the boosters for our guests to see on display, which will be the only place in the world, you know, once we, we finish uh, this project where you can see that. Uh, there are f a few other orbiters on display uh, in the nation, and just by coincidence, they're all kind of displayed differently. And so this is kind of our own unique flair on it. So did you have to add foam to the tank? Is it refurbished, I guess, at this point? It's in process. And actually, that was a big part of my work last year. So we have a, a restoration team that I manage, consists of local artists, sculptors, and painters. Uh, right now, we have one dedicated individual uh, working on it. Her name is uh, Natalie Rosen, and she's, she's terrific because, you know, she comes from the art world, but she has such attention to detail that something that you have to like have your nose right up to the tank to see she'll make sure that that texture is uh, on this new piece of foam that she's installing so there was that's amazing i would say maybe like a quarter or a third of the foam either missing or that needed repair on this tank which is about as long as the statue of liberty is tall it's like 150 feet long yeah so it's it's quite a bit a bit of work and so we, we have we have other folks on staff. We have, have a mold maker, too, who will take molds of uh, nearby foam and try to capture the texture and produce kind of carbon copy parts that then our sculptor, Natalie, can take, glue on the tank, and then try to hide the seams so it all looks like one piece. And I think what's so amazing about it is at the end when it's all refurbished, I feel like a lot of it will be lost. Like people just kind of like not know that there had been so much work behind <laughs> making this look so perfect. <laughs> right. So you were mentioning that basically it's a project to, to give this home for the space shuttle endeavor. Tell us a little bit about like the coolest parts about this the space shuttle. So so I think one of the coolest parts is that it's reusable. I mean, this maybe doesn't seem as novel today because... Now the space shuttle's, frankly, like a little bit of old tech. I mean, it was designed in the 70s. It was built in the 80s, and I think its its first launch was in, in 81 or 82. Uh, so, I mean, the program ran for 30 years and has been retired for, for almost 10 years now. Growing up as someone who watched things like Star Trek and, and Star Wars, you, know, you see all these characters kind of just like hop in their spaceship, go do their thing, and then they come back and it gets refueled and they hop in again, just like a, a car. And the space shuttle did that. It was sort of crude because of the technology that was available at the time. It was sort of heavy. It's kind of uh, affectionately called a flying brick because even though it has wings <laughs> it's sort of like Buzz Lightyear when it comes back to earth it just falls with style if any of your listeners uh, are kind of aerodynamics geeks uh, there's this thing called the lift coefficient and drag coefficient which tells you like how efficiently your wings are working um, or how much resistance air resistance uh, you're and this thing is just like awful it's it might as well be a brick but what it what it does really well is it kind of belly flops its way through the air so that you make this massive shock wave in front of the the orbiter because you're coming in at speeds faster than sound and so you tend to make make shock waves um, if you've ever had like a a military jet fly overhead you might have heard a sonic boom that's the shock wave manifested in your ears and so this thing screaming down 25 times the the speed of sound and it makes this this big belly flop shaped shockwave to help dissipate that heat 
And then once it starts slowing down enough, the, the tiles um, will also protect the orbiter from the residual heat that does leak through that shock wave. And, and the, the whole thing is kind of held together by glue. Like, it's just like weird. Like, the, the aluminum body is obviously bolted and riveted together, but all of the tiles are basically glued on outside of that. And they have like gaps between the tiles so that they can expand and contract as they heat up and cool down with thermal barriers to kind of fill those gaps. And it's just, it seems like it shouldn't work. And yet it, it does. <laughs> Repeatedly. Right? Repeatedly. I mean, we say at the Science Center that the orbiter we have, Endeavor, is on its 26th mission because it's uh, educating folks. But it flew 25 times to space before that. And we've left some of the battle scars from its flights on display. So like if you, when we were still open before the pandemic and, and you walked underneath it, you could see streaks along the underside of the wing from where little bits of ice you know not catastrophic kind of like with the the columbia accident but they they strike the the tiles but didn't cause uh significant damage and normally they would be repaired before the next flight but we left it there so you can kind of see like what it takes to get to space you were part of a team creating the inside endeavor virtual tours i'm assuming you had to go inside do you remember the first time you went inside <laughs> actually those photos were taken by a photographer, John Brock, who set up like a 360 degree panoramic photo. I think this was in, in 2014. So I actually wasn't in, inside when he took the photos. That said, you know, I, I'm supposed to know about this because I'm a curator for that exhibit. So one of uh, our ways to try to reach our guests who are closed for the pandemic was to take this existing footage that we had and try to make it available to guests. Um, because one of the most common questions we get when we're open, when we're closed, whatever is, can I get inside? Yeah. And it's so cramped in there and it's a you know national treasure artifact. We would love to have people get inside, but we just can't. So we thought, what a great way to not only use this existing footage, but try to honor this request that we've been getting from a lot of folks and show people, not only what is it like inside the crew cabin where the astronauts would ride up on launch, you know, sleep, live and work, but also in some of the guts of the shuttle, like one of my favorite parts, it looks a little overwhelming, is that the aft compartment, which is this kind of engine room crawl space between those engines that we were talking about feed from the orange external tank and the back of the payload bay where you would haul things up like uh, bits of the International Space Station or the Hubble Space Telescope. So there's this little crawl space between the engines and the payload bay where you see all these pipes and things that are actually pulling that liquid out of the external tank into the engines. And um, actually did get to crawl in there. And that was that was pretty cool. So I think if I hadn't been able to crawl in there, because uh, we were doing some maintenance, I wouldn't have been able to do the voiceover and help people understand what they're looking at, because it just looks like a crazy attic. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that I really liked about it was going exactly in this thing you just mentioned about pandemic and access. I like that it it kind of increased the access of people to science, but also to something that they wouldn't otherwise be able to, to see. And this goes to a bigger question of what do you think is the role of science centers or science museums in the world today? It's a, it's a fair question. I think one role we, we've always played, and it's, it's like you said, not just science centers, but museums in general, is to provide a place for people to learn outside of school. Because even when you're 
in school as a a kid you know, under 18 um, or even uh, if you're going to college you're only spending maybe a third of your time in school the rest of the time you're at home or you're sleeping right and then as you become an adult and you're out of school you're definitely not spending any time in school so museums generally provide this place for out of school learning and learning at your own pace and learning things that you're particularly interested in. and when we do it really well exposing people to new things that they didn't know that they wanted to learn about but we hopefully engage them and get them excited about it so that when they go home they might be enticed to you know open up wikipedia or watch a youtube video to learn more about that topic uh, one of the core tenets of the science center's mission is we want to inspire science learning and so that's really uh, a key goal of any exhibit we make it's important to have a scientific message there. And we, we hope a lot of our guests walk away with that message. But the first step to even getting there is to meet people where they're at. Maybe they're a science expert. Maybe they're not excited about science and that's okay. Get them excited so that then they can go to the next step and, and want to learn more on their own. And so I think that's a, a really important role for museums and science centers uh, today because there's so much information out there we are an important resource, not the only uh, one, for, for people to come and uh, learn about new things at their own pace and, and keep engaging people throughout their lives. Uh, it's a great family environment, too. So going off of that, one of the hardest things, I think, about science communication is adapting the content for your audience. And this seems particularly hard when you're thinking about an exhibit, which seems more or less kind of fixed. What are ways in which you've kind of had to deal with this challenge of like having the content be fun, but also accessible for this very diverse audience? Right. Yeah. Well, one way is to kind of zoom out a little bit from a single exhibit and look at an exhibition as a whole. Like we know because all people are different they're interested in different things. Maybe you're not going to have 100% success with that one exhibit, but you have an opportunity across dozens of exhibits to engage people, at least in like a plurality of them. And so it's good to, for example, have different entry points and have multiple modes of learning in, in a single exhibit and across different exhibits. Like, like for example, if you can have something that uh, is not just an artifact, you know, like the orange external tank with a, a panel of text in front of it, but also nearby an interactive where someone can play with, you know, maybe landing the space shuttle and maybe next to that have something where there's, there's not only an interactive kind of hands-on element, but maybe there are, are smells and sights more of like a, a video in a big theater with a lot of exciting rumbling and, and maybe like smoke machines you know, to <laughs> help you feel like you're at the launch pad. These are engaging different senses that you have to create a more an emotional connection uh, with different people and kind of meet them where they're at. Because we know that you know not everyone is, is super excited about science, but we're all human. And so if we can hook into that emotional component, a lot of times we can bring people along the ride to learn about the science along the way. We also think about uh, our different visitors who have different abilities, like maybe some people aren't sighted. Uh, they want to have access to things like uh, screen readers 
or even if they're at a big theater with a video, if you have a lot of exciting sounds and, and a nice audio description that helps them get the key points and the key takeaways of what everyone else who has sight to see, they can have a meaningful experience as they go through that exhibit. Also having like cultural competency, having uh, a diverse representation of scientists and people who you know worked on the space shuttle, engineers and technicians who come from different lived backgrounds, helps people see themselves in the exhibit. So they find that it's more relevant to their daily lives than maybe they thought before. We're definitely not perfect on this. This is something everyone's working really hard on uh, to always get better about. But I think if you have this mindset that there are multiple entry points, because you know people are all in different places in their lives, and you try to create a lot of different opportunities to reach people in all those ways, then you're generally going to have more success knowing that people you know, may not like a one particular exhibit, but hopefully across the spectrum of things they see in the exhibition, they'll come away with something meaningful and memorable. There is a lot of pressure, I think, to make learning science interactive, sure, but fun. But oftentimes it's just like, well, this is the way it is. Bringing in the fun seems sometimes artificial. Have you ever felt that with any of the exhibits? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, no, we have fights internally about that all the time. <laughs> um, and I think that's why it's so important that we have our mission statement to kind of be a North Star. And we remember what our, our goal is. So even though it's hard sometimes, we can evaluate the success of an exhibit experience based on those values. That said, there's always, yeah, this trap of edutainment, like, if it's if it's all fluff and doesn't feel authentic, sometimes the decision is, well, we just don't include that experience. Um, I didn't want to get into it earlier because I was already kind of getting long winded. But the exhibit development process has multiple rounds of iterative improvements, cuts to exhibits. You usually start with kind of this big ambitious vision and gradually gets whittled and whittled and whittled down as you bring in more stakeholders because uh, it's not just our exhibit development team of curators and writers and developers, but we'll also form advisory boards with scientific experts because we want to make sure, even though we're making a lot of fun stuff, that we're not misinforming anyone, we're not spreading misconceptions, that it's still accurate but fun, <laughs> which is really important because we want to retain our credibility as a scientific institution. Similarly, I know for the Sammy Ocean Air and Space Center, uh, one of the things I was involved with earlier was working with a youth advisory committee of kids from the surrounding community uh, around the Science Center because we had prototype exhibits of things that we thought might be a little high risk. Either they're very expensive or we weren't sure it was really going to communicate the scientific message that we thought. And so we wanted to test it with real people because you can kind of argue in a conference room about this forever but you have to ultimately go down and, and test it with real people. I'm going to continue with some uh, something that I found cool about your projects at the Science Center, which was disassembling and reassembling some planes. Mm -hmm. You often hear about just an object being moved from a museum to another, but a plane from a museum to another or from some hangar to some other place is a totally different story. What was that entire process like? It's a lot of learning on the fly for me personally, because I had never moved a plane before. But obviously you hire people who know what they're doing, uh, who are willing to kind of show you the ropes along the way. So we work with riggers who are experts in lifting heavy things safely, taking things apart safely uh, when they're very heavy. 
Uh, so like one of the first planes I got to take apart is this cool little race car of a plane called a T-38 jet that actually NASA astronauts fly around in when they're going around the country to their different training exercises and uh, getting ready for a launch. Uh, it's a little, little two-seater supersonic jet used for training and it's painted white with blue stripes. It really looks like a cool little race car. <laughs> and we had one in um, El Segundo out in the LA area that we wanted to acquire. And so typically like what happens with these aircraft is the wings are annoying because they stick out the side. So to move it through the streets, you got to take the wings off and then put the body, the fuselage on the back of a truck and then build cradles so you can stand the wings up vertically on another truck or, or next to the, the fuselage. And then you can drive that through the streets to your destination and put it all back together again. There's usually some cranes involved. And so the riggers, like that's the part I don't, I don't really touch. But <laughs> the riggers will go and put harnesses um, and other lines on the heavy load. You kind of pick it up a little bit just to see how everyone's feeling. Just a few inches, if, if things seem okay, then you can go ahead and, and, and complete the lift. We did a similar thing with a jet called a F-106 Delta Dart that we acquired in Texas. This plane is, um, again, very old. Uh, it's from like the late 50s, early 60s, but its claim to fame is it's the fastest single engine jet ever. Uh, it flew more than two times the speed of sound and just had, had one engine in the back, uh, which for its time was, was kind of crazy because if you lose that engine, then you don't have any power. <laughs> But that jet, it gets its name Delta Dart because it has wings kind of like the space shuttle, They're these big triangles that they don't just kind of connect to the body of the plane in one local area. It kind of connects along the whole length of the body uh, because it just turns out having that really swept back leading edge shape helps you fly faster because you don't make as strong a shock waves uh, when you're flying as fast um, as it could. So I remember like taking those wings off was a challenge because it wasn't just like one or, or two bolts. There were a bunch of like little screws along the edge, you know, to keep the skin attached to the body. And um, yeah, I'm just grateful to, to have the opportunity to, to touch real hardware. Cause that was, that was one thing I always wanted to do when I was in grad school uh, was do experiments, work with my hands. I'm an engineer by background. And just as luck turned out, I ended up doing a lot of computer work. So I didn't get a lot of it. Uh, opportunities to do that but now I'm getting that at the museum so it's really cool. So you do hold a PhD in aerospace engineering from UCLA and you were working in biplane wind turbine blades mm -hmm. which I know nothing about <laughs> but tell us about the kinds of questions that people are interested in answering about these. So that project was an idea to make basically bigger and stronger blades so that turbines could collect more energy. We know that just by having a bigger circle that your rotor on the wind turbine is sweeping out, you're capturing more air and you can convert more of that, that wind, that moving air into uh, electricity. Uh, and so as we were, you know, still trying to transition to more renewable energy, you wanted to have as big a turbine as you could make theoretically, but then you start running into reality, which is, it's hard to manufacture these things. It's hard to transport these things. I mean, we talked a little bit about how annoying it is to move airplanes. Imagine moving a wind turbine blade that's 100 meters long through the streets. Um, yeah, so typically like these things would be more often than not installed offshore where they're not in as many people's ways to have like a really, really big turbine. So even if you can kind of get around those, those manufacturing difficulties, 
then you start running into the realities of structural engineering and that when you have a really long thing only attached at one point at its root and you got heavy wind blowing on it there's a lot of stress at that root and it wants to break so typically what you'll do is you'll try to make the root fatter and a lot of times these blades have uh, cylindrical roots uh, to withstand the loads and it turns out that's a that's a decent uh, solution because the rotor is not spinning as fast near the root as it is out by the tip it's it's kind of sad actually but there's some concerns with uh birds particularly i think in northern california the golden eagle is or was endangered and they were they would fly around these wind turbines and it's the turbines seem like they're turning pretty slow like on the order of five revolutions per minute but the tip speed is something like 200 miles an hour and so the birds would fly thinking you know they could make it through and sometimes the blade would knock them on the back of the head. And so that would, that would be a problem. Oh, no. Yeah. So all that is to say, like, at the root, it's not going 200 miles an hour because this thing's only spinning, you know, like five revolutions per minute. So having a fat root is not a terrible thing because you're not losing that much energy that you could have captured. But as you move closer to the tip, uh, it, it is an opportunity to improve the efficiency, the aerodynamic efficiency of the blade. So our crazy idea was, well, you can still kind of keep the cylindrical root right at the the bottom of the blade. But as, as you get further out, instead of having really fat kind of wing sections that gradually morph into thinner wing sections that are better at capturing wind energy, what if you just split that fat wing section into two thinner wing sections or a biplane? And so it ends up kind of looking like a slingshot where there's like a Y joint at the middle where these, these two biplane parts join together into a single monoplane for the, the outer half of the blade. But then at the root, uh, the, the biplane would also merge back in, into the, the cylinder. And so that, that was our theory. It turns out, to make a long story short, the results were a little mixed. <laughs> and because it was such kind of like a, a weird idea, we did it all on the computer because there was a lot of you know risks associated with you know trying to build something. So we wanted to analyze it computationally first to see if a you could really get some aerodynamic benefits out of it which you can uh, and b and probably more importantly uh, there's some structural benefits but it's a really complicated structure to analyze so there's still definitely more work to be done so your bachelor was in mechanical engineering how did you know you wanted to go into aerospace engineering so i think like many people like I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid it's probably no surprise that I ended up working <laughs> at a science center with a space shuttle so like the like space has always interested me it just turns out when I went to Berkeley for undergrad they don't have an aerospace engineering program so I did the next closest thing I mean the joke in mechanical and aerospace engineering circles is that it's the same thing it's just like how heavy of a thing are you building but all the equations are the same it's just like does this thing need to fly no? Okay, just make it out of really heavy steel and leave it on the ground. It's fine. <laughs> That's amazing. But if you want to build a, an airplane, you know, you might want to use some titanium or use some carbon fiber, things like that to lighten it up. But all, all the equations are pretty much the same. So that being said, like, I worked my way through undergrad, and I think there was one aerodynamics class offered every four years. And I managed to, like, nab that in my senior year before I left. So when I went to grad school, it was really important to me to find a place that had an aerospace engineering program. So I ended up at UCLA working on wind turbines instead. 
Did you know kind of like throughout your PhD that you would like to work a museum and in particular at a museum where you could kind of keep working on this aerospace engineering passion? Uh, somewhere in between. I mean, I definitely didn't plan on working in a museum, you know, when I started my PhD. But this interest in education, I've had it for forever, particularly in practice. I've had it since undergrad. A few of my friends and colleagues, we formed this group called Berkeley Engineers and Mentors. We called it BEAM for short, where basically go to local schools after we were done uh, in class and run after school programs and bring things like Lego robots uh, or other lesson plans that we developed on our own, you know, as undergrad students. We bring those to local elementary and middle schools in the Berkeley area. And, uh, you know, that was kind of like my first practice at science communication, because what's the ultimate non-technical audience? Kids. And if you can get kids excited about something, then and maybe like this field is something that, uh, you know, would be interesting to me. And, you know, if your listeners are doing that, maybe to them as well. Then when I went to UCLA for grad school, I took a break from doing any, you know, extracurricular stuff in my first year because you just want to kind of land on your feet, make sure I'm not stretching myself too thin. But by second year, I missed it. So we started another chapter at UCLA of BEAM and kept it going all the way until I graduated. So I've always wanted a way to blend my interest in education and having like a broader impact on uh, my surrounding community with my technical expertise. So when I was finishing up my PhD, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. But by coincidence, this researcher position at the California Science Center opened up. That's how I ended up at a museum. It's kind of a circuitous path, like a lot of people's career paths are, but, but that's, that's how it worked out. It sounds like for you, science is a lot about wonder curiosity, which plays right into this recent podcast you started called Ever Wonder at the California Science Center. What has been the most kind of surprising part about getting into this kind of a project? You know, when we started it, it was kind of by necessity, kind of like the, the virtual shuttle tours that we talked about earlier. The pandemic had hit, our doors were closed, and we're trying to find other ways we could reach out to our audience. And um, podcasts, I listen to podcasts all the time. So I was like, oh, this, this should be easy. <laughs> I'm an avid consumer of this thing. How hard could it be to create it? And it's surprisingly difficult, as I'm sure uh, you can attest to <laughs> being a podcaster yourself. Uh, we have a ragtag team uh, of three folks here uh, at the Science Center. I'm kind of the face of it because I'm the host, but our editor, Liz, and our other associate producer, Jennifer, uh, do a tremendous job really making this thing happen, booking interesting guests, and uh, making all of us sound smart uh, when it gets edited. <laughs> so I think that the difficulty, I, I kind of entered into it maybe with a little too much hubris, like, oh, we'll do one every other week. It won't be that bad. And luckily, like we were able to start with internal staff. So if any of your listeners want to check out our podcast, you'll notice it's a lot of like behind the scenes episodes right now, talking to people in exhibit development. Um, we have some episodes coming out with people who take care of all of the animals at our science center, because we don't just have a space shuttle. We also have an aquarium, a big kelp forest. There's a the huge living collections department of keepers. Um, and husbandry managers and veterinarians who make sure our animals aren't getting sick while we're closed and people are still going into work uh, to take care of them. And so as an aerospace engineer, I think those episodes were probably the most challenging for me <laughs> because I don't really have a strong background in biology. Personally, I find it kind of difficult to access 
it just doesn't make sense to me. Little things don't make sense to me. <laughs> Cell biology is particularly challenging. <laughs> so, so trying to get in that mindset of a listener who might be, you know, a 10 year old kid or an adult, you know, who's just trying to find something interesting to listen to when they're taking a break from their, their, their job and access that wonder and curiosity and ask the questions that they might ask to these experts and have that come out, you know, and get bits of good tape for, for the show has been really challenging. But when it works out, uh, it kind of puts a smile on my face and, and it's rewarding. Does it remind you of a successful exhibit? You know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but but yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to find that, that entry point, get people excited. Yeah. And answer those questions that hopefully, you know, they're, they're wondering about, you know, they might turn to their friend like, hey, you ever wonder like why the sky is blue? Well, let's go talk to someone and try to find the answer to that. Harry Roth Johnson, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Absolutely. Thanks, Miranda. It's nice to talk to you. We are made of star stuff, said Carl Sagan at one point. To me, that is equal parts fascinating and humbling. There's nothing quite like contemplating the chain of events that led to us existing within this universe. So I was positively thrilled to be able to talk to Perry Roth Johnson about aerospace, the Space Shuttle Endeavor, and the kind of work one does to communicate the science within a museum. Thank you again, Perry, for chatting with me. It's been great to learn about rocket boosters, flight-rated external tanks, virtual tours inside Endeavor. I hope you've found it as inspiring as I have. And maybe it has led you to do a little bit of research about all of this on your own. Our music is Float and Fly by Gold Gartel. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.